Good afternoon, and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon, taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or about Christianity, we'd be glad to talk to you about those questions. If you have challenges uh, to the Bible or to Christianity, we'd be glad to take those from you as well. Uh, you just need to call this number in the coming hour, and there's a, a few lines open right now. Uh, the number to call is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. And um, uh, I, I need to announce all week that I'm speaking in the uh, Central Valley of California um, the, starting, well, starting really Thursday night. I'll be in the Sacramento area in Roseville. Uh, I'll be speaking in Roseville on Thursday night and Friday night. And then on uh, Saturday uh, daytime, I'll be speaking in Oakhurst, California. And I'll be giving a, uh, looks like it's going to be about, uh, I don't know, three hours or so uh, lecture with a break in the middle on the veracity of the New Testament or the reliability of the New Testament. Uh, that's going to be in Oakhurst on Saturday morning. And then Sunday uh, in the afternoon, I'll be speaking for, uh, again, about three hours on the four views of Revelation. That's in Fresno. And, uh, and then Monday night, I'll be speaking in Auburn. And that's a Q&A. And I think, I think um, when I was first approached about this, they mentioned that... Uh, the, the core group that has invited me to come has been studying uh, um, preterism. I think they have some questions about it, but I, I'm sure questions can go any direction. This is on next Monday night, not tonight, but a week from tonight. And um, then I'll be in Clovis speaking on Tuesday, not tomorrow, but next week. So uh, from uh, Thursday night till the following Tuesday night, I'm speaking at various places, uh, including Roseville, Oakhurst, Fresno, Auburn, and Clovis, California. And if you're interested in any of those meetings, I understand the Revelation one on uh, Sunday. You have to register for that. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it doesn't cost anything, but they want people to register for that. If you want information about those, you can go to our website, thenarrowpath.com, thenarrowpath.com, and just look under the tab that says Announcements, and you'll find everything you need to know about those gatherings. All right, and that's uh, all I need to say about that. Let's talk to Terry calling from Texas. Terry, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Thanks, Steve. Steve, I've been thinking about the word grace lately, and it's scattered throughout the New Testament. And uh, there are several definitions of God's unmerited favor and things like that. But I've just been thinking about it. It just seems that it, it's so much bigger than so many ways we try to define it. And I was just wanting to get your take on it. Well, yeah, I think grace is much bigger than just God's unmerited favor, though it is that. Um, when we think of grace, probably more often than not, what comes to mind is something resembling mercy. Uh, that is to say, we don't deserve to be saved. But God saves us not because of our merit, but because of his grace. 
and we see grace then as sort of like mercy. I've heard some people uh, speak of grace and mercy differing in this respect, that mercy is when you don't get the bad things you deserve, uh, when you're spared punishment for things you actually you know did wrong. That's mercy. But that grace is the giving you of uh, privileges that you have not earned. So one is the sparing of punishment, mercy, and grace is the uh, giving things you don't, you haven't earned. Uh, now, certainly salvation, the Bible makes very clear, is uh, by grace through faith. But and and Paul does talk about grace in Romans chapter four, especially as being in contrast to works as a means of of being acceptable to God. He talks about how Abraham was accepted because of his faith that was counted to him for righteousness. And he said, now, if it was of works, it wouldn't have been a gift. Uh, it would have been earned or owed to him. So Paul does make this point that grace is the opposite of uh, merit as a basis for acceptance with God. But if we, you know, if we're only talking about going to heaven, if we're only talking about how do I get right with God so that I don't end up in hell, this is the only part of grace we usually talk much about, but the Bible talks about other aspects of grace. And um, very probably more often, although I haven't counted up the times, but just intuitively it seems to me like it could be more often, uh, grace is spoken of as something given to us as Christians when we're already saved. Um, but it's given to us to help in time of need. You know how it says in Hebrews that we should draw uh, near to the uh, throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Well, to help what? Well, to help in every way. Uh, The Christian life is not to be lived by human fleshly carnal uh, determination. Uh, The Christian life can only really be lived supernaturally, and that requires the divine assistance which is what grace is. Grace is more than just favor. It's also, in addition to favor, it's the manifestation of that favor in tangible uh, assistance in in time of need. And so uh, Paul says, for example, in uh, 1 Corinthians 3.10, he says, I, uh, according to the grace given to me as a wise master builder, have laid the foundation of the church and others have built on it. So he's talking about how he planted the church in Corinth, and he said, I did this by the grace that's given to me. You know, his success in his ministry in planting that church was really, it was grace um, given to him to help him do that. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he's talking about how he actually uh, did more work, more ministry work than the other apostles did. And he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, meaning the other apostles. Then he says, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. So he says it was the grace of God that was with him that allowed him to labor more than the other apostles. And there's many references to uh, grace at work uh, in the Christian life. And one of the ways that it's uh, seen to be at work is in giving Christians supernatural aid in times of suffering. And we see this, of course, uh, a use of it that Paul brings out in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he talks about this thorn in the flesh. 
which he does not identify, though it was apparently something very painful in his life. And he says, three times I begged God to take it away from me. So this was, no, Paul was no wimp. His, his life was characterized by massive suffering. He was beaten with rods multiple times. He's uh, got the 39 lashes uh, with a whip uh, several times, five times, I believe it is. He was imprisoned several times. He was shipwrecked numerous times. Uh, he was chased out of town. Paul was no stranger to suffering. But this one thing was so tormenting to him that he cried out to God three times, please take this away from me. And, uh, you know, for a guy as stalwart as Paul to be that desperate to be rid of it, it must have been something very, 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 very uh, disabling. And yet when he prayed for it to be taken from him, he said that the answer he received from uh, Christ was, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, <clears throat> Paul was weakened by this thorn in the flesh, but Jesus didn't want to take it away. He says, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. My grace will sustain you. My, my grace will be sufficient uh, for you in this. And, you know, Paul does talk about uh, sufficiency uh, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians quite a bit. His sufficiency for the work God gave him. In Second uh, Corinthians 3, 5, Paul says, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Now, he doesn't use the word grace there, but two other times he does speak about grace as his sufficiency. One is in the passage we just read where he had the thorn in the flesh, and Jesus said, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And, and the other one is in... Um, I think it's 2 Corinthians 9. Let me check that out. Yeah. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, so you will always have all sufficiency in all things. So God's grace abounding to you provides sufficiency for you. He says, We're not sufficient of ourselves to do this stuff. It's the grace of God. Uh, he says, I've labored more than all the other apostles, but... Not just that, that I've, I've actually, uh, um, you know, done more, more than them, but it was not me. It was the grace of God with me. So, so grace is, uh, is something of, of God himself. In fact, um, in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of grace. And when we receive the spirit, the spirit of grace, we receive grace to help in time of need. And that, and that spirit, that grace that comes through the Holy Spirit, is the strength uh, which is made perfect in our weakness. So, you know, if you ever wonder how it is that, uh, that you would handle trials that you hear perhaps other Christians in other parts of the world have gone through or in other times in history, things that are so horrible that you just think, I don't really know that I could really be strong enough uh, to be faithful in those times. Well, there's a good chance you couldn't be strong enough, but God can and his grace is sufficient. And uh, grace comes to us through faith. Not only the grace of forgiveness, which is, again, the only part we often hear about, but the grace of enablement, uh, the grace that strengthens us. That's given to us through faith also. As we simply live our lives trusting Christ, uh, his grace is given to us uh, moment by moment. 
And in small trials, we have perhaps small grace because we don't, we don't need so much. But in great trials, then the grace is given in greater supply. And this is what all Christians who have faithfully suffered uh, have found out to be true. Thanks, Terry. We need to take another caller, but I hope that clarifies some things. Uh, Yolanda from Katy, Texas, another Texas caller. Welcome. Hi, Steve. It's nice to talk to you. I'm thinking a lot of Texas calls must be because we're iced in and we uh, are free to call you today. <laughs> yeah, it can't go to work, I guess, huh? Yeah, exactly. Hey, I have a question for you. First, I'm going to preamble my question with thanking you for how uh, you do not quickly call things heresy and how you've had said that on your uh, on you know, on the radio a few times, and I really appreciate that because it's really taught me not to so quickly call beliefs um, that might be contrary to what I believe, heresy. Yeah, well, um, you know, the truth is I, I just don't feel like I'm, I don't think I'm authorized to, de- to declare what is he- heresy and what is not. I can certainly say, oh. I can certainly say which doctrines I think are wrong uh, and oh. what doctrines I disagree with, but to call them heresy, I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. a term that historically was, you know, you'd get all the bishops in the world together to t- contemplate a doctrine before they'd call it heresy, and I'm just not. Right. I don't. I don't have that kind of competence. Well, I appreciate that. So, so then you can help me to maybe with the question I have for you to help me to how to see this situation. Lately, my husband and I have been going to a Lutheran church, and I did not know. I found out by us going there that they baptize infants, and they baptize infants under the scripture in Acts two thirty eight. And 39, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and your, for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And in baptizing these infants, they declared that these children are now in the light and life of Jesus. So they are offering them salvation in this baptism. And so would that not be another gospel, as, as Paul warned to the uh, Corinthians and to the Galatians, to say that the baptis- baptism of an infant is declaring them saved? Is that not, um, like I said, not another gospel that we should be weary of, wary of? And how should I see that? And how should I, maybe I am going to go talk to the pastor, but how should I address this issue? Well, I certainly disagree with the pedo-baptists who, who believe we should baptize infants. Uh, this was the view, however, of course, of the Catholic Church for, for whatever, the past 1,300 years uh, or more, 1,500 probably. And, um, and it's also the, the view of the Reformed churches, Lutheran uh, churches, uh, Presbyterian churches, and even churches that aren't called Reformed, uh, but, but Episcopal uh, Methodists, they all baptize infants. Um, and, it, you know, the idea of baptizing only adults who have already believed and repented was restored to the church through the Anabaptists in the 16th century. And um, and now, of course, there's many denominations, uh, Baptists and Pentecostals and others, that, that baptize uh, no infants but only believers. And this was a controversy so much in the 16th century that Zwingli, who was a Reformed guy actually authorized the death of 4,000 Anabaptists. These were Christians who believed that they shouldn't baptize their infants. They themselves had been baptized as infants, but they got re-baptized as, they, uh, as adults. And anyone who got re-baptized 
was put to death if they were caught. So, I mean, this was a real major controversy back then. It doesn't seem quite as hot a controversy in today's church. But anyway, um, the, yeah, the, the idea that you can justify infant baptism from any passage in Scripture at all is, is not true. I mean, um, it's like when uh, Paul said to the jailer in Philippi in Acts 16, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, and your house. You know, a lot of people say, well, if you believe, then your whole house will be your whole family will be saved. Um, now, it, it happens that that jailer took Paul and Silas home and, and bathed their wounds, and, and he and his whole house believed, and then he baptized his whole family. Uh, that is, Paul baptized the jailer's whole family, and, and those who baptize infants, they see, they would baptize whole families there. Well, they believe they baptized all believers, and all of that man's family became believers. It actually says uh, in that passage in Acts 16, they rejoiced, uh, his whole household rejoiced, having believed. Uh, that is, they believed in Christ and got baptized. So we don't have there any reference to infants being baptized. There's no reason to believe there were any infants in that house. In any case, uh, everyone in the house believed, and everyone in the house was baptized, apparently. Now, uh, Acts 2.38, where Peter says, when they say, what must we do? They didn't say, what must be done to our children or our infants? They said, what must we do? And he said, you have to repent. You have to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he did say, for the, the promises to you and to your children, and to as many as are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now, what promise? The promise that he just said, if you repent and you are baptized, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that promise applies to your children, too. If they'll repent and be baptized, they'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But, but repentance comes first. Right. You, never, you never find anyone in the Bible being baptized before they repent. Um, and that's what Peter said, repent and be baptized. So repenting comes first, being baptized. And this applies to your children as well. So, uh, you know, we do read of promises made to uh, families, but those, fam those, those, those promises assume that the conditions that apply to the parents also apply to the children. Uh, there's no suggestion that the requirements made on the parents would not be made on the children. Uh, so, anyway, I, I just don't see anything. Now, is it a heresy? Is it dangerous? Is it a bad thing? Well, it can be. But I think that, I think, I'm, I'm not that familiar with the Lutheran opinions about this, but lots of these uh, pedo-baptist uh, groups, like the Catholics, and I think the Lutherans too, and, um, you know, Episcopal and others, a lot of times they have a secondary thing they expect uh, the children to go through when they reach maturity. In the Catholic Church, of course, it's confirmation. You baptize infants in the, in the Catholic Church, and then what, when they're adults, young, young adults, they go through confirmation. Now, confirmation, if it's genuine, if they're really putting their faith in Christ as mature agents, that would no doubt be when they're really converted. Um, I think, I think uh, not all of these groups, but I think most of these groups believe that when you baptize an infant, they still have to, as a more mature person, they have to confirm that some way or another. But they believe that in baptizing them in infancy, 
you're kind of sealing them for God. And if they happen to die before they make a mature decision, they're kind of under the protection of that baptism. Now, anyone, uh, any, any Lutheran out there who is listening can certainly call and correct me. I'm not, I'm not trying to misrepresent anything. I'm just not 100% sure what a Lutheran would say about that. But I know that, I, I know that most of these churches, even the Catholic Church, when they baptize infants, they do believe that uh, you're not going to be saved even if you're baptized, unless you also go through some more mature, um, you know, choices that, that commit you to Christ. Um, so, in other words, they, they would explain it differently. I don't believe in baptizing infants, but, uh, I, but I, see, I believe that infants are under grace anyway, uh, whether, they're bat- whether they're baptized or not. So, whether you baptize your infant or don't, I believe the infant is uh, under grace until they reach an age of accountability. And then I just uh, I just my 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 concern was the parents believing you know their children were saved and they didn't go through confirmation and grew up and came to it what we call an age of accountability and never got saved because they based it on that baptism would that be you know slippery so I'll, so I'll go into our pastor and I'll ask some questions and some of the information you gave yeah, me I'll ask you could what do that yeah the expectation but, is but but you see even people who don't believe in baptizing infants uh, for example a lot of Pentecostals or Baptists or others who don't baptize infants, they might baptize a child who's, say, seven or eight years old. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and you might have the same problem. That, that child may assume later in life, well, I'm a Christian because I got baptized when I was a, a child. And, sure. uh, of course, we're not saved because of anything we did when we were children. We're saved because of what we are doing now. We're saved because we're following Jesus. <clears throat> if we're following him, we're one of his sheep. And his sheep enjoy eternal life. But if we're not following him, we're not his sheep and, uh, and not enjoying eternal life. So, but if you're following Jesus 10 years ago, you had eternal life. If you're no longer following him, well, you don't have eternal life because eternal life is in him. You have to abide in him. So, well, yeah, well, thank you so much, Steve. I've taken enough of your time. I appreciate your time on this. Okay. Good talking to you, Yolanda. Thank you for calling. Uh, Oscar in Mount Vernon, New York. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Yes, sir. Uh, if a person can lose their salvation, how can they get it back? Well, salvation isn't uh, a commodity that you can lose it and get it back and lose it and get it back and so forth. Uh, salvation mm-hmm. is in Christ. If you have Christ, you have salvation. It says that in First John 5. Uh, verses 11 and 12, I think it is, it says this is the message that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son of God does not have life. So this is not about religion. This is not about uh, jumping through ritual hoops. This is not about mm-hmm. buying or selling or losing a commodity and getting it back somehow. This is about Jesus. Your relationship with Jesus is your salvation. Now, if... If you have a, let's just use an analogy of, let's say you have a friend, and uh, you're, mm-hmm. you're very good friends growing up, and then you get, become distant from each other. Maybe you even do something uh, very wrong and betray them, um, and, and you're no longer friends with them. How would, you, how would you ever be back in friendship with them again? Well, you'd have to go back to them and certainly apologize mm-hmm. and ask their forgiveness. And if they, if they're, you know, gracious and loving, they will forgive you, and the friendship can resume again. 
it's having Jesus, having that relationship with Jesus that actually you know, determines whether you're saved or not. So if you have Christ at some point, you're saved. If you walk away from Christ, you disown Christ, you betray Christ, then you know, no one who has got a biblical sense would say you're still saved then. Uh, but then, of course, you say, how do you come back? Well, you come back the same way you'd come back to any other relationship you'd broken. You, you, you must grieve over the loss. You have to you know, repent and apologize and, and ask forgiveness. And, and, and if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it means that we're now loyal to him again. It doesn't mean that we're going to remain disloyal and, and betraying him and just ask him to forgive us. No, we have to come back into that relationship, that proper relationship of submission to him as our, our Lord and King, which can be done. Just as it was initially. When you first become a Christian, when you first become a Christian, that's what, what you do. You, you surrender yourself to be in the right relationship with him. And, and a right relationship with the King is submission to him and obedience and loyalty to him. If he's not your king, then you don't have a relationship with him that makes any sense because he's a king and you're not. So, um, you know, some people say, well, I have a relationship with Jesus and that means he's my pal. It means he's my friend. Well, yeah, he can be your friend, but he's got to be your king too. And if you haven't come to a place where you're submitted to him as your king, well, you haven't become what the Bible calls a Christian. You might be what some churches call a Christian, but... On the day of judgment, you're not going to have those churches standing up before God and saying, yeah, I, I, we recognize him as a Christian. The question is whether Jesus recognized you as one. And if you were submitted to him and, and you know his, his follower, then he recognizes you as one of his sheep. If you were not, it doesn't matter who said you were a Christian. They won't fool him. Anyway, I'm out of, I'm out of time, but I appreciate uh, this. We have another half hour coming up, so we're not really out of time. Uh, don't go away. The Narrow Path is listener-supported. If you'd like to write to us, the address is The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. Or our website is thenarrowpath.com. I'll be back in 30 seconds, so don't go away. If you call The Narrow Path, please have your question ready as soon as you are on the air. Do not take much time setting up the question or giving background. If such detail is needed to clarify your question, the host will ask for such information. Our desire is to get as many callers on the air during the short program. There are many calls waiting behind you, so please be considerate to others. Welcome back to the Narrow Path Radio Broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for another half hour taking your calls. If you'd like to be on the program, you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, call me at this number, 844-484-5737. Again, that's 844-484-5737. Our next caller today is Jason calling from Spokane, Washington. Hi, Jason. Welcome. Oh, hi. Thanks, Steve. Um, My question is, um, 
shouldn't we be able to understand God in fact he does while your your phone broke up just at the crucial time, shouldn't we be able to understand oh. God? What were the words after that? And why He does things. Oh, okay. Uh, well, maybe some some of it we can. We certainly can't understand everything about God because He's well. When we try to understand something or someone, we have to have some frame of reference. Um, there, there ha- it has to have some resemblance to something we're familiar with. Um, and if, if there's no, if there's no points of resemblance, then of course we'll probably not be able to know much about it. But, but in God's case, there are points of resemblance, but they're, they're not, uh, they're not infinite. I mean, that is to say, we know what a father is. We know what a king is. We know what a child is. We know what marriage is. And these are the images that the Bible uses to help us understand what's on God's mind, what's on his heart, what kind of relationship we're supposed to have with him. Those are the things that matter. Uh, and, yeah, we can understand those things by analogy. But we can't understand everything about him because there's many points of God for which there's no point of comparison. Uh, we don't know of anything else that always existed and never began. There's actually nothing except God that fits that description, and we do not have even the ability to even think very careful, uh, very much about that. It, it's, we can't even imagine something never beginning. We can't imagine somebody being everywhere at once, uh, and yet God is. That's called his omnipresence. Um, you know, we, we don't really relate to anybody else who's invisible. And so there are things about God which are not like, really anything else or anyone else that we uh, we relate to. And so there's going to be aspects of him that are beyond our kin, beyond our ability to grasp. So when you say, shouldn't we be able to understand God and why he does things, uh, I would say in measure, but not completely. You know, we one thing we can say is that when we're raising children, they do not understand all the reasons we do things. We might make them eat their vegetables when they'd rather only eat ice cream. Now, they don't know why. Uh, we do, because we know a lot more than they do. We know about nutrition. We know about vitamins and minerals and things like that. And they don't know anything about that. They have no concept of that, but we do. And therefore, they just have to trust that our instructions are intended for their good. And there's many things that we tell our children that they simply have to believe us or not, but if, if, but they should because we're speaking to them from a greater understanding of the world they're living in and the consequence of actions and things like that than they have. And there's a sense in which we are much less even than children are compared to God. God's not just as smarter than us like we are of our children. He's more like infinitely smarter than we are. And therefore... Of course, there's going to be times when he tells us to do things and we won't fully understand why. But we will, that's where faith comes in. We trust that he knows better than we do and has asked us to trust him in this and do what he says. So, so I mean, we do understand something about God because we are, we are parents or we, or we are children or we are spouses and stuff. And those facts give us some points of parallel, some points of analogy to say, oh, I understand how a father is toward his son. 
And yet the analogy is not, uh, you know, it only extends so far. It doesn't extend into infinity as God himself does. So there's going to be lots of things about him we can't grasp. Uh, that's one reason that I don't, uh, I can't say that I understand the Trinity. I believe in the Trinity because I believe it is a biblical doctrine, but I don't understand it, nor do I think I need to. Why should I need to understand that? That's, I mean, there's, I'm not sure there's any analogy to it in our natural world. And whenever people try to create analogies, they seem to fall short of what the Bible actually says. So, I, you know, we have to realize there's going to be things we don't understand about God. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Okay, Jason, thanks for your call. Good talking to you. Um, all right, we're going to go next to Lorenzo from Huntington Beach, California. Lorenzo, welcome to the Narrow Path. Hi, Steve. Shalom. Same to you. My question. Thank you. My my question today is um, Genesis, uh, and in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Period. And then the Bible uses. Um, well, let me say, and then two um, talks about the earth again, and then. Uh, that it was form uh, without form, and darkness was on the face of the deep. Uh, I think I thought, heard you talk about um, people called, called and asked about when did evil begin. So then, can I assume that the, the evil was in the beginning of darkness with those two uh, verses? Well, I don't know that darkness, that physical darkness, is the same as evil. Of course, it is true in in later revelation, in later uh, imagery, uh, evil is sometimes uh, spoken of as darkness uh, by way of analogy. But and but but you know things don't when you turn the lights out at night and it's now dark in your room. There's not a greater presence of evil than there was when the light was on. Uh, Darkness is not evil in itself. It just becomes an analogy. Uh, later on, but when the Bible says, you know, darkness was upon the face of the deep before God created land above the waters, I don't think that, and before he created light, uh, I don't think that that's telling us uh, anything about it being bad. Of course, he doesn't. He doesn't talk about anything being good until he makes light, and they saw that the light was good. But I don't think that means that light equals good and dark equals bad. Because he said the same things about everything else. He saw the, you know, the land that he'd made, the fish that he'd made, the animals. He saw they were good. Uh, obviously, he's not saying uh, fish equals good or you know, land equals good or light equals good. He's saying that the, what he created uh, was as he wanted it to be. It was good. He'd done a good job. So I don't think there's a, uh, necessarily a suggestion here that evil uh, was created here. Now, now, if, if darkness in Genesis 1-2 is somehow suggestive of evil, and I'm, I'm not seeing it necessarily, um, it wouldn't mean that God created darkness, because darkness is just what exists without light. God created light, but before that, there was no light, and therefore there's only darkness. So darkness was more the default situation until God created light. And I don't think the Bible teaches that evil is the default before God comes along. Um, I think evil is derivative, not not original. And so 
I don't see that as as the origin of evil there. Okay, um, and I know because the Bible isn't um, necessarily chronological. Um, evil, should I say, appears or manifests itself later. Yeah. The what, first... was there, you have a, a a study on that that I could go to to kind of get on track and, and get off this well, uh, there's no idea. Yeah, there's no evil in the world until Genesis chapter three. But um, if you're wondering about the creation of evil, I don't believe evil is a created thing. I no, think, neither do I. Yeah, I think evil is simply something that is done. Uh, when someone does something that's not good, someone does something that's wrong, that's, that's evil. And, um, the will of a created being, basically you're saying, that, that, which is, I believe also. We, well, yeah, something something that's contrary to God. Yeah, if, if someone does something that God told them not to do, that's mm-hmm. bad, and uh, and the action is evil. So it's not as if evil is something that God or anyone else created. Evil is just something mm-hmm. that some people have done. Some people do evil. It's not a created thing. Co- and that correct. is first seen, yeah. first seen in Genesis 3. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, correct. It's like I think you're saying too. It's like if it wouldn't have been a rock that uh, King uh, slew his brother Abel with, it would, could have been a gun. You know, the gun in itself isn't bad. The rock in itself isn't bad. It's the will of the of the of the being, the person. Right. Material things are them are not themselves evil in themselves. I mean, right. uh, at least the material world is not. It was after God created everything in the material world that He said He saw all that He had made. It was all very good. So, you know, he doesn't see the created world as, e- as evil. Now, uh, a rock is a good thing if you want to mm-hmm. build a rock wall, or even if you want to pound a stake into the ground or something, you don't have another tool. But it's not a good thing if you pick it up and crack your brother's skull with it. Or Correct. if you or if you carve it into a statue and then bow down to it and worship it as a god. I mean, this is, this you know, the material world only becomes evil when evil people employ it for evil. Yes, I understand. All right. Hey, I appreciate your call. Uh, our next caller is Rick from Arizona. Hi, Rick. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Hi, Steve. Um, less of a question, maybe more of a statement on the uh, infant baptism caller. Okay. I kind of wanted to just tell you the conclusions I've come to and then let you uh, give me counsel or critique, critique my okay. position. So um, taking all the verses in Acts, it seems to me that the the baptism seems to be talking about when the gospel's breaking forth on the scene and it's hitting adult believers that are repenting and becoming Christians and a lot less to do with what Christians will do in the future with their babies. So I've yeah. kind of, I mean, I, um, and so I've kind of taken some other verses to, um, you know, if we're to raise up our children, if a Christian couple has a baby and they're to raise up their children in the, in the admonition of the Lord and sort of like the first thing you do when you disciple somebody the Great Commission kind of deal is baptize them and then teach them to obey all that I've commanded you them. And so the danger of that is, yes, your child might grow up and walk away from the faith, but I see the same issue with couples that kind of wait for it to be sort of the child's decision um, because I've seen them accept Christ. They go to camp, some other decision. They see somebody else get baptized, and they walk away too. So I feel it's kind of a one, you know, 50-50, you're just going to, Treat a Christian like a Christian when they're behaving like a Christian. If not, you're going to call them to, to task, so to speak. So I, I kind of just don't 
I've always wondered what I should do with that. That's kind of my position. I want to baptize my children, raise them up, and then should they fall away, I would, you know, treat them as an unbeliever. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, all of my children were baptized when they were quite young. Um, but when I was young, I went forward at an altar call when I was like four years old. And I, my parents were attending a Baptist church, and the Baptist church wouldn't baptize me until I was 12. That was their policy. They wouldn't baptize a child before 12. And uh, I wonder if, uh, I mean, I, I, that seemed strange to me at the time because I believed my conversion was sincere and they should just take my word for it. But um, no doubt the choice of 12 was reflective of ancient wisdom. For example, it was around that age that the Jews bar mitzvahed their children, which which was the, the child's uh, assuming of you know, adult responsibility to keep the Torah. And uh, and no doubt Roman Catholics and others that have, um, you know, confirmation, I think that often happens when child's around 12. So maybe the Baptists that I was with, they just chose that as the time where that's when a child is becoming a young adult and, and, uh, and can be held responsible for what they do. Now, there's nothing in the Bible that says that a child can't be baptized before age 12, but I can understand that in a way. Uh, because, uh, let's face it, what I understand baptism to be is a person's crossing the threshold from an old life to a new life and from the old world uh, of of Satan's kingdom into the new world of God's kingdom. It's like crossing a threshold. And I believe that that is literally done when a person actually submits to Christ. And uh, when they submit to Christ, that's what repentance is, I believe. That's when, uh, I, that's when I think it's appropriate for them to cross that threshold. Now, it's awfully hard to know if a child, let's say under 12, I'm picking the number out only because some Christians use it, but it's hard to know if a Christian under 12 really understands much about the kingdom of God and what it means to cross into that kingdom. I believe a child under 12 can, but it seems to me like a lot of kids who are baptized, they're not really sure what they're getting into. They know their parents are Christians and they want to be Christians too, whatever that means. And and they they love Jesus. They like the stories of Jesus they heard in Sunday school and they want to follow him too. And But they don't know what it means. And um, I, it seems to me that a child is under grace until they've reached a age. I don't know what that age is, but it's an age of adult responsibility, in my opinion. And uh, if I had it to do over again, I probably wouldn't baptize uh, a child who's who I had any doubts about their their grasp of what they're doing. Now they might be under twelve when they when they can grasp that. I don't know, but I don't think there's any harm in waiting to make sure, because when when people are baptized and they don't understand what they're doing, um, I, I believe they often are confused about that. If it turns out they didn't really make a, a knowledgeable decision, and then they think, well, what did my baptism mean? It's it, Different churches obviously have different policies. Um, I, I, I don't have a Bible verse that tells you when a child should be baptized, you know, at what age. But um, my own thinking, I, you know, I probably would set a policy a little like the Baptist church had that I was raised in. You know, 12 is a good age, um, although I wouldn't necessarily rule out every case younger. So I, I would have a lot of questions, but I'll just leave with one follow-up to that. 
Um, so what would you do with like you 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 have somebody you brought to Christ in a rather short amount of time, a couple of days, right? I don't know how long it takes to lead somebody to Christ, but you've given the gospel. Um, they want to become a Christian. Don't we baptize them and then continue to flesh out everything it means? I mean, we laid out repentance. Yes, of course. Uh, of course, even uh, even after you've been converted, really understand that much. Yeah, e- well, even even years after you've been converted and baptized, hopefully you'll be learning more and more about what it means to be a Christian. Right. Um, but I think one has to at least have the fundamental understanding of what it means to uh, to submit to a king, you know. And I think an adult can be that can be clarified. I, I, when we bring someone to Christ, you know, we talk about bringing someone to Christ. Um, I think a lot of people are thought to have been brought to Christ when they've been given a somewhat little formulaic explanation of how, you know, they are sinners and they're, they're doomed uh, to hell because of their sin. And Jesus died for our sins and they rose again. And if we believe in him, we'll go to heaven. That's, that's kind of a, not all churches, but the evangelical world I was raised in, that's kind of how they evangelize people. So a lot of people would say, okay, I'll do that. When all they really understood was, they're getting their sins forgiven because of what Jesus did, and they're going to go to heaven when they die. And that's all they know. And I think people need to understand the kingdom of God somewhat better than that, they need to understand that Jesus is the king. Now, when in the book of Acts or in biblical times, when people said Jesus is the Christ or Jesus is Lord, those terms meant something that they have ceased to mean in many people's minds today because we think of Lord and Christ as sort of like alternative names for Jesus. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ, we think of that as his first, middle, and last name or something. Whereas in biblical times, the word Lord conveyed a very specific idea. Namely, a Lord was a owner, uh, uh, you know, someone who had servants. And, uh, and the word Christ referred to the anointed one, the king of Israel. And therefore, when people would say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It wasn't just believe that there was somebody named Jesus who died and rose again. You believe in his lordship. You believe in his kingship. Christ means the king. And, uh, and so I think, that, I think that a lot of people, the way that modern evangelicals evangelize, a lot of people don't quite have that understanding. And then they say some kind of a prayer and and then they're in you know candidates for baptism and so forth and I just want to I would want to make sure that the person who's getting baptized understands this is a lifetime commitment to be loyal to Christ and to serve Him and um, some do and some don't understand that but I'd, I'd want to make sure that the person I'm dealing with is capable of grasping that. All right, thanks for the conversation, Steve. Hope I can see you in Arizona. I think you're coming out soon, right? Yeah, I hope to see you again. God bless yeah. you, Rick. Okay. God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye now. All right. Don from Pasadena, California. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Hello. Yes, this is John, and thank you for taking my call. Or John. Um, okay. uh, John, with an S-H. <laughs> the oh, Irish Sean. Okay. Wrong. Yeah, okay. there you go. Sean. Uh, so um, without getting into too much details, I have a brother, uh, slightly younger, who uh, I believe him was saved when he was a young teenager. Uh, but pretty much led his own life as far as life choices go, but was always troubled by it. Uh, eventually got married to an uh, unsaved lady. They had three kids. Uh, my brother, uh, we find out later, kind of was nitpicking her into becoming a Christian, even though he wasn't practicing himself, not going to church, not reading his word. 
nagging her all the time. She kind of got sick of it. And uh, after, I'd say, 15, 16 years of marriage, uh, she got fed up and stopped cheating on him with a next-door neighbor who happened to be a woman. So his heart was broken. He reconnected with the Lord. We were helping him uh, as family members and friends over a year and getting closer to the Lord himself, getting his act together. Uh, as he was sincerely trying to win her heart back. That was his goal, uh, to win her back in heart. Uh, long story short, um, he eventually got impatient with what the Lord was doing in her life, uh, and he started uh, dating her co-worker, and that got her so upset that it eventually led to their uh, divorce. And then he ended up breaking up with that uh, girlfriend and so forth, and now he has a current girlfriend. So that brings me to present day, more or less. As a Christian man myself, uh, I was wondering, uh, as he's starting to talk about perhaps marrying this new girlfriend, not the one he was cheating on uh, with his wife, but uh, a replacement, uh, broadly speaking, is there a dogmatic answer from the Bible as to whether a person who, for lack of a better term, is a perpetrator in the dissolution of their own marriage, meaning he did cheat on his wife before they uh, divorced, uh, is there a dogmatic answer as to whether or not that person uh, can't re-enter into a covenant of marriage with someone else, or is the institution All right. of All right. marriage? Let me see if I understand, because this, this, this is a complicated yeah. story. Yeah. Are you saying that his wife left him for a, a, a woman? He still lived with him and was married with him while she was dating this woman that was in their uh, condo complex. So, no, she never left. She never talked about divorce. And he tried to win her heart back while they were still living together, while they were still married. But while they were still married, then he started dating her co-worker. Okay, but I'm thinking of her. Who was she with? Was she, she uh, had a, an affair? Uh, yeah, she was having an affair with a female uh, neighbor. Okay. okay, so she did that first. Yes, as an unsafe lady, and he was safe. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say that her doing that uh, gave him legitimate grounds for divorce. Um, oh, 100%. We all agree right. with that, but before okay. he went forward with right. right. the he went forward with the Okay, and then he had an affair and gave her grounds for divorce. Correct. So both of them Correct. had grounds for divorce. Both had grounds for divorce. Okay. Correct. And, and, and so, so the follow-up question was whether is, does that, when you are a perpetrator that leads to the dissolution of your marriage, uh, are you able to at some point remarry as a Christian, or is that... Uh, institution closed off to you as a Christian trying to do the right thing because uh, institution marriage is too holy for uh, God to say you had a right, you cheated on her, uh, no, you can't get remarried. I don't know if that's uh, the case. Well, this idea of whether divorced people can remarry is a very uh, disputed topic among Christians. Some believe that no divorced person can remarry. Uh, others believe that just about anyone who's divorced can be forgiven and remarry uh, to someone else, and then there's those in between those two, and I'm I'm in I'm in the in between group that believes that most divorce is not justifiable and does not lead to freedom to remarry, but there are some grounds for divorce, which if a person has those grounds, then remarriage is okay. Now I believe that both this man and his former wife have uh, have those grounds, which means they could remarry. Now, she can't remarry a woman uh, because that's not what marriage is in the Bible. Um, if he has repented of his sin, um, 
you know, I think he is free to remarry. But um, now his ex-wife, I assume, is still not a believer. And as a, if he is a, I don't know, I don't know if you said he was a believer or not, but if he's a believer and she's not, then I don't think there's any reason that they have to try to get back together. Um, but uh, but uh, he should obviously seek the will of God about whether he should remarry. Because even if you have grounds for remarriage, it doesn't mean that you're that you should just run off and do that. I think you, especially if you were in a situation that ended up so strangely in the first marriage, you really ought to be pretty careful about remarriage. And yeah, if your basic ground level question is, can a man who has ruined his own marriage, um, in this case after his wife ruined it, but can a man who's gotten out of his own marriage, uh, can he ever remarry? I think there are circumstances in which he could, and in my opinion, he is in a position that he could. That doesn't mean I would approve of every choice he might make in future marriage any more than I'd approve of anyone's every choice they make, because some people make very bad choices in remarriage. But, um, but yeah, I don't think that he's doomed to be uh, you know, consigned to never marry again because of the, the crazy things that happened in his first marriage. He did wrong things, and he needs to repent of those. But uh, having repented, I don't think he has to bear punishment for them uh, the rest of his life, as, as I understand the scriptures. If you'd like a very thorough treatment of that subject, at our website, thenarrowpath.com, there's a tab that says Topical Articles. And I wrote a, a number of articles for magazines that were published, and, and one of them is on divorce and remarriage. And I, I actually cover very thoroughly the whole topic uh, scripturally. And, and you might want to read that. That's at thenarrowpath.com under the tab that says Topical Articles. There's one that says, that's called Divorce and Remarriage. The Narrow Path is listener-supported. If you'd like to write to us, the address is The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. And our website again is thenarrowpath.com. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk again tomorrow. God bless. Mm-hmm.